Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is hour two of Mornings Without Carmen. I am Peter Kapsner filling in for today, and we have been busy with a not-so-hostile takeover of the show here this morning when suddenly somebody called in with a wee bit of concern. So, uh, Paul, let's hit the studio line here and see who is on the phone. All right. Hey, uh, hello. This is uh, Mornings with Carmen, and you are? Well, I am Carmen, and (laughs) Peter Kapsner cannot have Mornings Without Carmen. Carmen is still listening. I, I feel like your big brother, like we're, we're except your big sister in this situation. I feel like you know Orwell is among us, and you, and you are watching from some undisclosed location at this point, Carmen. What are you up to this morning? So I'm sitting on the side of a hill waiting for the uh, county road manager to come by. He wants to widen our road and pave it, and I have to defend the edge of my <laughs> the edge of my land. I'm I'm uh, yeah. I, this is literally a get-off-my-yard kind of morning. I love This is the kind of stuff that movies are made out of, Carmen. I mean, this is the scene, right, where the village gathers together and defends their property. That That is what Carmen LeBurge is up to this morning. Yeah, so this is um, this will be interesting. This is a meeting that's been like four or five years in the making. All of the property owners along this little gravel road are going to get together with the, you know, with the county road guy, and we're going to talk it through should be interesting. I love it. Well, you know the drill. we got just about a minute left here before we bring Daryl Bach into the program to talk about cultural intelligence. But, uh, Carmen, any reflections for your listeners here this morning as we get ready for the election tomorrow? Yes. Um, no matter what happens, Jesus will still be Lord. God will still be God. Um, and you and I will still be talking together every single morning. I love that. Well, it's great to hear your voice this morning. Thanks for checking in. Thanks, and, and good luck defending your property. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's great to hear the voice of uh, Carmen LeBurge again. Uh, she is certainly uh, away for today, but I know she is uh, checking in, listen, listening carefully, never far from the hearts and minds of the listener. I know how much she enjoys being with you in the mornings. And uh, she has such great guests, including the one, Paul Perot, that we have on the line now that we'll come back to you just after a break. And Daryl Bach, who's written this book on uh, cultural intelligence. And my understanding is, if I'm correct, is we have some copies of this book that we can give away. That's right. We do have copies. So if you want to win, what you do is you text the word book, just the word book, B-O-O-K, to our phone number, which is 877-933-2484. You'll get a little message back with a link. Click on the link, fill out the information. Your name is in the hat. I love it. So again, that phone number, you can text book to the studio line at 877 933 2484. Not just textbook. If you want to check in on the program, anything you're hearing, some follow-up questions you want to ask, feel free to chime in at any point this morning. Daryl Bach, up next here on Mornings Without Carmen.
Welcome back to Mornings Without Carmen this morning here on the 2nd of November. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and delighted to be joined by Daryl Bach, who's written a book uh, here called Cultural Intelligence. And Daryl, we were just uh, reflecting during the break that you and I are both Scotland guys. Your Aberdeen is, from what I understand, and I was uh, from the University of Edinburgh. That's right. So, um, you know, I love the uh, the whole North Sea area and the coast and its beautiful part of the world. And uh, I miss not being there. Hmm. It is a sweet place uh, in the world to be. And certainly, as maybe you can start us off this morning with uh, some concepts from your book, especially just even the definition of cultural intelligence. But when you move overseas or when you live in a different culture, as you did and as I did, even in a place like Scotland that is English speaking, everything is still somehow entirely different than sort of your native culture from which you're from. And so talk to us a little bit about cultural intelligence and, and maybe in some ways that we underestimate how different different people in the world really are. Yeah, well, I actually begin by saying that the word culture is a misnomer as if everything is all the same. And so what we what we have are cultures or subcultures that are like plate tectonics. They rub against each other, sometimes build pressure, etc. And the premise of the book is is that in order to have cultural intelligence, we the church needs to do a better job of appreciating what it means to live in a pluralistic world. We've been so used to an environment in which uh, the context has really been our own exclusively or predominantly, that being able to deal with the differences that are becoming more intense around us as people move around the world is a, is a calling that the church has and needs to uh, adapt to. Yeah, certainly that, that would be. And, and I, I've, I've heard people suggest that we're nearing the end of what some people would call Christendom or the idea of Christians being in social power where they levy quite a bit of influence in governmental circles or educational circles, other circles of life as well, that for 1500 years since Constantine uh, authorized Christianity as the Roman religion of the day that we've been living in this Christendom. But we're sort of moving back to almost a pre-Christian era, as it were, that is more akin to the early church life where there really was a lot of different ways of life, a lot of different ways of worship, where the Christians were just one way of being in in the midst of culture. Do you think that's a fair statement at this point, at least in Western culture? Yeah, I think it's true in, in parts of the country as well. And so what I like to remind people is, is that in the first century, the church had no social power, had no cultural power, had no ideological power. All it had was spiritual power. And it was that spiritual power that became the draw. And so the idea that the church can survive in that kind of a context, we actually have a model for in the biblical period itself. And so I often have a message that I give when I talk about this called Back to the Future, that if we want to see what the future looks like for the church and how the church functions in the midst of that environment, all we have to do is read the New Testament. It really is a fascinating book to read. I'd love to get into the letters of Paul with you here in just a minute in light of cultural intelligence. But again, we're listening to, to Daryl Mock talk about his new book, Cultural Intelligence. If you'd like a copy of this book, we have several available this morning. You can text the studio line at 877-933-2484. Text the word book, and we can get you on the docket here for a copy uh, of this text. And Daryl, you talk a little bit in your book about what we can learn from the engagement of Paul. And I think 
sometimes we maybe don't appreciate how his calling and ministry led him into some crazy places, at least in his own mind, places that would be terribly unfamiliar. I know geographically places like Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica are very close to Jerusalem, but you didn't have the internet. You didn't have a lot of mobility back then comparatively. And so Paul really was having to learn all of these different cultures that that really then influenced the writing of his New Testament letters. That's exactly right. And and the point of the chapter was to say Paul could describe culture in a very um, direct and, and, and challenging way. I mean, he was obviously not happy about culture. In fact, I'd say there's a technical theological term he used for describing the culture around him was the technical term yuck. And then, uh, and then you move to actually how he addresses that culture, and he tries to build some bridges and and you see this in Acts 17 as as compared to Romans 1, and he tries to build bridges and says, I see you're spiritual, but let's talk about that spirituality for a moment. And then he tries to put a rock in their shoe. That's, you know, giving them a question that gives pause on where they're coming from so that they think about the way they see their spirituality. And you know how a rock gets in your shoe and it irritates you, finally have to take the shoe off and get the rock out of there. That's that's kind of our responsibility. We have this mixture of hope and challenge that we put side by side when we offer the gospel, and we've got to remember both elements as we go to share who Jesus Christ is, or else we lose the fact that the message that we have is actually good news. It is gospel. And Daryl, if we want to learn from some of what uh, Paul had to write back then, can you just give us maybe some examples of what the culture was like that he was addressing and, and how, I know a lot of our listeners are very familiar with the scriptures, but we often encourage people to somehow rewind themselves back into first and second century life with the early church. Uh, what are some ways listeners can get back into that context and maybe some examples of how important it is according to what Paul wrote? Well, a simple example is, of course, it was a polytheistic culture. There were many gods. You chose the array of gods that you wanted. You had a god for each area. You actually had 150 religious holidays every year, which meant that there was a religious holiday to celebrate every three days. I joke with people, we ought to adopt that calendar (laughs) just for the holiday schedule. So, you know, but so it was everywhere. And the contrast with our world is, is our world, we didn't have, we don't have that much spiritual involvement in many ways, but we still have the challenge of the variety of views and the variety of ways people can live their life that the first century church also faced. Yeah. And Daryl, with that, what would you recommend to listeners that that they become more intelligent related to what's going on around us? I mean, I think we see in passing, there are so many new kinds of new age religious expressions or millennials like to describe themselves as a, as a melting pot of different religious traditions or possibly none. What are some first steps for people who maybe feel a bit disempowered by how confusing and how pluralistic our culture has become that maybe they can begin to educate themselves in that way? I think the first step is to be curious and secondly, to be a good listener, to try and understand underneath what's motivating a person to be to orient their life the way that they are and to initially not be critical, but just try and get a read what I call getting a spiritual GPS on someone to see where they're coming from and what's motivating them. Then you're in a much better position to talk to them about about the way life works, and you might have some things you can connect to as you interact with them. So the more curious you are, the more you ask questions rather than make statements initially, 
to get located in terms of where the person is, the better off you're going to be. Hmm. It's Dr. Daryl Bach, and again, we have his book available this morning on Mornings Without Carmen. His book is called Cultural Intelligence, and you can test the word book at 877-933-2484. Daryl, when we come back in just a minute, I would love to get into some perspective that you share in the book about how to make difficult conversations a bit easier as we're in the tension of all of this pluralism. And then I think most importantly, how do we begin to interact with what you just described as the spiritual power that the church does have in the midst of any context, bringing both salvation and love in the midst of it. So more coming with Dr. Daryl Bach next on Mornings Without Carmen. It's about 18 minutes past the top of the hour here on the 2nd of November, and we're chatting with Daryl Bach in his book, Cultural Intelligence. And Daryl, you and I were chuckling during the break there a little bit about how off balance we always felt being out of place in a different kind of culture in Scotland. And I know for me, it it really was a learning curve in learning somebody else's culture. And I I really was always off balance. I didn't know which way to look oftentimes when crossing the street. I didn't know that uh, smart meant well-dressed over there and you use clever for intelligent. There's just so many ways in which we're off balance. And we are as people, we're often very off balance, are we not? Yes, we are. You know, the story I love to tell is I got off the plane to go do my uh, to go to Aberdeen. I was in London, and I hit customs, and you know they say aliens over here. So I got up to the to the gate to hand the person my passport to enter into the country, and I said I would at least like to be, have credit for being a part of the human race. <laughs> you know, and, and so. Um, you know, it is a challenge, and and those adjustments are the way people live. We, my wife and I, joke that we say you have to live by different rules over here, and you have to figure out what the rules are and know what the game is. So that's kind of what what the experience is like. Yeah, and I think in fairness, there is the idea that we're living by a different set of rules in what I would call this this present darkness or or the exile in which we find ourselves in this world. And I think. Uh, unfortunately, we, we tend to think that this world is actually our home as it's meant to be, as opposed to the idea that we're spinning towards a time when the king will return and earth and heaven will once again become one. We really are in this place of exile. And Daryl, you talk a bit right at the outset of your book, and I find it terribly compelling, uh, that in a way that reminds us of our actual battle. So tell us a little bit about this passage from Ephesians and, and what this means for our life as believers. Well, um, the Ephesians 6.12 tells us that our battle is not, 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 not against blood and flesh, is the way the Greek reads, flesh and blood. It's not against humans, and that was emphatic in case you didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, but there was a lot is, of knots in the Greek there, yes. But, but it is, but it is uh, it's against spiritual forces, and so I tell people it makes all the difference in the world when you get into a difficult conversation with someone who's coming from a different place, whether you view them as an enemy to be crushed or whether you view them as someone who needs to be rescued. And so I said, you need to join God's intelligence agents. Like if you need a military metaphor, think of yourself as special forces going in to rescue someone. But the trick is that the person being rescued who's in danger doesn't even realize they're in danger. And so, so the spiritual forces work incognito, and some people don't even recognize that they're there. And so... It changes the way I approach someone by how I see them. If I see them as an enemy, I'm going to treat them one way. If I see them as someone in need of a rescue, I'm going to treat them in another way and with a different kind of empathy and understanding. And we all have been in the place. God approached every one of us from a position in which our backs were turned to him. We need to never forget that when we're interacting with someone who thinks differently than we are. 
I think it's such a profound point, Daryl, and, and you write a bit about the purpose of salvation, and, and, and one, among the many words that can be used of salvation is a word you just used, and that's that word rescue. And, and I think about if we have a common enemy as the human race, and that being the principalities and powers that our battle is not against flesh and blood, there, there's, a, there's a different call for believers that, say, you're observing the rioters or, or, or some of the looting that's gone on in our country and may happen again in the weeks ahead. As a believer, to cultivate hatred towards that in your heart um, as a opposed to the desire for the wholeness of another human being, uh, you can go ahead and say the rioting is not wrong, but if you er, is not right, but if you tip into a place where then you wish ill will upon the rioters or you cultivate hatred in your heart, you're sort of expressing violence just in a different kind of way. And, and not to mention you're violating one of the most fundamental commandments, distinctive commandments that Jesus gave Christians, which is we're supposed to love our enemy. And so the, our whole approach in tone is as important as anything that we believe about the content of our faith. And I think we've missed that recently, and we need to recapture it. Yeah, and, and loving your enemy does not mean you agree with your enemy, right? It just simply means in the midst of what they're no. doing, you still long for their reconciliation, for their rescue, their wholeness. That, that's really the heartbeat of love, and it's not a, a patronizing thing. It's a real brokenheartedness thing. That's exactly right. And you need to understand there's a difference between making an effort to understand where someone is coming from and agreeing with them, which is the basis for having a good conversation with somebody. Yeah, such an important point. Again, the book is Cultural Intelligence. It's Daryl Bach, and you can text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you'd like a copy of this. Uh, Daryl, you talk a little bit about uh, effective ways to teach the Scripture and using the Bible as well as as a, a way to engage with the culture. So tell us a bit more about what you mean by that and the importance of our scriptural awareness as we engage in the culture. Well, the main thing is I say most of our teaching goes from the Bible to life, but most people read the Bible from their life back to the Bible. In other words, they have a situation they want God to address. And our leaders who teach the Bible need to learn how to switch it. They need to be able to go either way. The harder part about going from life back to the Scripture is, is it really requires a canonical understanding of the whole of Scripture, that one passage on a topic is not going to do it, which is how sometimes we tend to preach. But we have to sweep the Scripture for the various angles that Scripture takes on an issue. So take money, for example. You read the Proverbs. Money is a blessing. It's a good thing. It's something that's from God. It's something that enriches. You read Jesus on money, and he warns about the dangers of being excessively attached to money. You need both of those ideas to think scripturally about how to handle money, and they, and they interact and, and kind of qualify each other as you think about your life and relationship to money. We need to read all topics that way, and it assumes a really deep knowledge of the whole of Scripture, the canon of Scripture on a given topic, in order to read and present the Scripture that way, to work from scenarios back to Scripture. Yeah, again, a really important point in that. I remember reflecting a couple of weeks ago on maybe how many verses of Scripture that perhaps I could speak somewhat intelligently about. And if I was to give myself a bunch of credit uh, or, or maybe undue credit, let's just say for the sake of argument, it's a thousand passages of Scripture. In that, Daryl, I would still only have about 3% or less of the Bible that with which I'd be familiar. And what you're inviting us into is not just pull verses out of Scripture uh, somewhat randomly, but there really is this documented whole that is hyperlinked together. I think about how Genesis 3 ends with the exile from the tree of life. In Revelation 22, it says, now the way is back open to the tree of life. And there's patterns and themes and hyperlinks. And so to become a study, uh, a student of the holistic scriptures is really important for our equipping. Exactly right. And so that means that many passages don't have the universal application that we give them because other passages qualify or put a contextual 
perspective on how that passage is to be seen. And when we only go with one or two passages, we'll miss those qualifications. All right, Darrell, we just have about a minute left or so. Can you give our listeners uh, maybe last tips of advice and equipping for how to become more in culturally intelligent as we're heading into sort of this post-Christendom world? And I don't mean post-Christian world. I mean post-Christendom world where Christians maybe need to interact with the world in a different kind of way. Well, as I said before, I think the most important common characteristic that's often missing is the ability to listen to someone and to dig deep into what is motivating them to orient their life the way that they do. If we understand their identity and where it's coming from, we're in a much better position to engage with them and interact with them. That's great stuff. Again, the book is Cultural Intelligence. Uh, We can, I think, Paul, we still have a few copies left. uh, If you text book to 877-933-2484, we can send a copy out to the listeners. Well, they'll be put in a drawing for the copies. For the copies. Okay, so yes. please get your name in for the, the drawing, drawing for the copies of the drawing, book. Yes. Yeah, we do have a, a few copies here available. Daryl, thanks for the book. It's a great text, really important as we think about the future and how to interact with our faith and the culture. I appreciate it. Anytime. We'll take a short break here for Breakpoint and some bottom of the hour news. And when we come back for the last half of hour two here on Mornings Without Carmen, we'll be joined by Dr. David Aikman and looking forward to getting his perspective from a global standpoint on the elections here around us. Well, of course, we still have a bit of COVID in the news and uh, cases are spiking. I'm sure you know all over Europe. I see that over the weekend here, England is preparing to enter another nationwide lockdown because of the virus as the UK has surpassed about a million infections. I do have some friends, as you know, over on that side of the pond as well and talk to them somewhat regularly. And they do say, yeah, they absolutely are seeing cases all over and uh, the holidays for them and for us as well, I'm sure will be deeply impacted moving ahead. So we'll talk a bit about coronavirus with David Aikman coming up next here on the show, as well as some of the troubling headlines out of France and the ongoing uh, Muslim attacks that are happening in some of the churches there, as well as a number of other things. He's so intelligent on so many different headlines. So stay tuned. More to come on Mornings Without Carmen. This is Max Locato. Turns out the formerly blind man wasn't the only blind person in Jerusalem. The religious leaders had the openness of a locked bank vault. A bona fide miracle had occurred, but did they seek to meet the one who caused it? They saw nothing but themselves and their religion. And because the leaders refused to see, they cast him out. John 9 and verse 34. The was blind man found himself kicked out of the temple with no one to defend him. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man. You see, Christ was not about to leave the man unprotected. You can expect him to do the same for you. Others may disown you. Your family may reject you. The religious establishment may dismiss you. But Jesus Christ, he will find you. He will guide you. Remember, friend, you are never alone. This is Max Locato. My name is Bond, James Bond. Love that intro. That means that Dr. David Aikman from Godspeed Magazine is joining us to talk about some of the global headlines of the day. There certainly is more going on than the elections here in our country. Good morning, David. Good morning, Peter. And actually, it's worth mentioning that Sean Connery, who made the Bond character absolutely emblematic of uh, of, uh, the whole story, uh, died this last weekend. And a lot of people gave tribute to him as a fellow who absolutely embodied the personification of 
Bond characteristic. Yeah, that is a, a noteworthy passing for sure. I saw that as well. I have to confess, he's one of my favorite actors of my generation. Once had a chance uh, in in a parade in Scotland to to see him up close in person. He he was a lot taller of a man than you would have guessed. He he sort of towered over all of the bagpipers at about six feet five inches tall. He really was sort of the, the epitome of the secret agent guy. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, was he six feet five or six feet three? I, yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. I just know. Well, and, and the Scots are not exactly known for their height, but but he certainly stood out right. among among all of the drummers and in, in, in that parade. It was quite quite a spectacle. Well, what an opportunity you had to see him close up. Very good. Yeah, he was definitely the gentleman. Well, David, there's a lot to get to here around the world, and obviously where you are in Ireland is a part of what's happening uh, in, in the U.K. and then across Europe as well, where we see the coronavirus infection spike as we're heading into the fall and the winter season. I see that the U.K. has gone under full lockdown, and they're not alone in that. So give us an update of what's happening in your side of the pond. Well, the U.K. lockdown starts on Thursday and goes on till the beginning of December with the possibility that it can be continued after that. The Irish lockdown has been in place uh, for a few days and will also probably continue for at least three weeks. And, of course, France is totally locked down. Germany is partially locked down. So there's a real sense in the continent of Europe that this virus has not only not gone away, but it's basically come back in a sense of uh, really making much worse the condition of the infection. So I think Europe has a long way to go before it can really open up again. Was this Did this come as somewhat of a surprise? I know there was quite a bit of hope over the early summer part and even in the late summer that the virus had been effectively not eradicated, but it had been tamped down and under control, and then suddenly everything spiked. And, and it wasn't necessarily because there was a, a tremendous relaxing of restrictions. So was this a bit of a surprise to see it spike in the way that it has? I, I think it was a surprise. Well, what really happened is that as the countries of Europe, of continental Europe, began to relax, then young people particularly uh, tended to go out and go to things like raves and so forth. That also happened in, in Britain. And the result was a whole bunch of people who had not been infected suddenly got infected. This then led to the death among old people who got reinfected or infected for the first time. So... It was a very, uh, very unhappy combination of different circumstances all coming together. In terms of the way out of this, I know that Oxford University, so well-respected in England, has been partnering with AstraZeneca on one of the many vaccines that are under development. I know in the United States there's a lot of talk about that. There's hope that this vaccine will come towards the end of December or early part of next year. Is there, is there the same sharing of that kind of hope? Are people seeing that that is ultimately the way out of the pandemic uh, again over in Europe? Well, I think... People are being a bit more realistic in Europe, or at least in, in the UK, about the chances of a vaccine becoming operational before the beginning of next year or the middle of next year. And even then, it's not going to be reliably tested all the way through. So there's not the same 
hope that the vaccine, when it comes, will solve the problem that there has been in the United States. And that, I think, is one of the differences. And one more question on that, David. Uh, there is there... I know the different governments of the different European countries are really different, but generally speaking, there can be a sense of distrust among what the politicians in the United States are saying. Is there is there that same level of distrust across European countries? Because I do read in places like Sweden that one of the reasons why they at least had some, some early success in their approach was as much about the government and the people trusting one another as it was about the approach itself. Yes, I think that is a correct observation. Sweden has a much more coherent political and social composition than many other European countries. Therefore, it's had relatively more success early on. But there's not a whole lot of animosity between Britain and continental Europe politically in spite of the negotiations for the Brexit uh, uh, trade relationship. But um, among European countries, there is not a universal willingness to sign on to the same restrictions and the same limitations on travel from one country to the next. So that's making it harder for Europe to come up with a coherent policy for every country. There's more headlines uh, than just COVID coming out of Europe as well. I've seen some of the disturbing events in France itself where it seems like the long-simmering tensions between the Islamic community and some people within the French press, maybe the French educational system, the French government as well, has erupted again. So give us an update on what's happening there and and what do we see in maybe the months ahead? Do we see that this will be subdued again a bit and and be tamped down or is it going to continue to get worse? Well, I think it's a situation that uh, got very serious two or three years ago. And then in the last few weeks, we had that teacher uh, in outside Paris who was beheaded by uh, an Islamist fanatic. And then uh, knife attacks in, uh, in a cathedral in Lyon. And... Uh, no, actually, uh, knife attacks in Nice, and then an Orthodox priest in the city of Lyon was shot by a sawn-off shotgun by yet another Islamist. And uh, I'm always amazed that the news reports of these things fail to pronounce the words that are always a prelude to somebody being stabbed in Europe by an Islamist, namely Allahu Akbar. And uh, it's incredible that this phrase is mouthed by virtually all of the attackers who are often described as low wolves that may actually have had associates helping them to plan their attacks. Yeah, as if a pandemic and, uh, and and sort of the contentiousness of the elections aren't enough to see some of the religious violence rise again is uh, not not easy to deal with. That's David Aikman. We'll take a short break and come back. We've got more to cover, including an update on the locust swarms in Africa. And I do need to get, before we wrap up, Dr. David Aikman's perspective on the United States election. So stay with us. More to come here in just a moment.
Now, I like that bumper music there at 12 minutes before the top of the hour. We're chatting with Dr. David Aikman about some of the global headlines. And, David, it's a story that I, I sort of run across every once in a while, but it's really a significant situation with these locust swarms in Africa. So give us an update on what's happening there. Well, the locust swarms in Yemen have absolutely devastated the crops of people for whom an income from harvesting the um, the vegetables and fruits that the locusts swarm over has been completely destroyed. And, of course, Yemen is in many cases, in many ways, a failed state. So they don't have the state resources to provide support for all of these farmers who've been absolutely ruined by the infestation. And I'm always surprised that they describe the infestation as a one-in-a-lifetime event. And then they proceed to recite how many times since 2011 we have seen such things. So I think they're much more frequent than than is commonly supposed. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, about what the rhythm is, just even from the migration and and the birth and and life cycle patterns of the locusts themselves. It does sound maybe like this one is more significant, but this is not just a one-off event. This does happen on a regular basis. And David, I think about, again, listeners who maybe are understandably looking towards the signs around the globe that, oh boy, this really is another place that represents the fact that the end is near among us. But these locust swarms do happen on a very regular basis. They do, unfortunately, yes. And there doesn't seem to be any reliable way of stopping them, especially during the COVID pandemic, when you can't use the normal sort of spraying techniques to stop them. Yeah, you see some of the footage of them. And I mean, the sky is just thick with billions and billions of these locusts. It really is hard to imagine that something like this could could exist. And and I think in the absence of being able to intervene in any other way to, to pray for the people there, uh, that the devastation that has wreaked upon them, that, that there would somehow be a way out would be appropriate for believers. And David, uh, switching over maybe then to a little bit of the election that's happening and has been happening in our country and, and comes to fruition then tomorrow. I know that when I lived in the other side, of the pond that there was a distinct preference for candidates that maybe were not Republican. It was almost always uh, on the Democratic side of things going all the way back to 2000, 2004. There there was sort of this dumbfounded idea that Americans could prefer George Bush over Al Gore or another candidate. They were just even surprised by that. And of course, that's only been magnified in in the last how many years where there really is a sense of how could they possibly even consider voting for President Trump, there really is a different perspective in Europe on presidential politics. So give us a little insider look at that. Well, I'll tell you the insight I have for living for the time being in Ireland is that the Irish media and the British media are almost pathologically hostile to President Trump. And it's quite extraordinary the efforts they go to to report the various campaign activities. And they report a Biden uh, rally, and they will go and interview Biden supporters. And of course, they'll come up with all kinds of reasons why everybody should vote against Trump. But they won't bother to go to any of the Trump supporters and ask them why they, for goodness sakes, actually support Trump. So it's a very distorted reporting 
And I think the larger issue is that the sort of a class attitude of contempt for voters who who subscribe to many of the worldviews that Trump supporters believe in, for example, there's very little understanding on this side of the pond of what you might call conservative religious uh, preference for Republican candidates. Mm. And they don't seem to understand, many of them, that he is popular with many people in the United States because he is seen as somebody who defends religious freedom, not only in the United States, but around the world. Moving uh, further east then from Europe to the continent of Asia, and of course the country of China pops up quite a bit in both the the, the um, conversations that Joe Biden has with his electorate as well as, of course, with uh, Donald Trump as well. And so how, how is China, from your perspective, how are they perceiving the results? Because you hear both candidates say, gosh, China really wants that person to win, and, uh, and China is vilified by that. But is there really a preference coming out of China in terms of who they'd like to see being president? Oh, I don't think there's any question that that China would love to see Biden elected uh, because they realize that Trump is very pugnacious on trade issues, that when he says he'll do something punitive against uh, sort of trade activities that he doesn't consider fair, he's likely to put that into effect. So I don't think there's any doubt that they've done everything possible to sabotage the campaign of Trump and uh, promote Biden. So we'll have to see what happens in the election. Um, And I think people of my general observation is it's going to surprise a lot of people what happens. Mm. David, we have about a minute left or so. So maybe one more commentary from a different part of the world, and that being from Israel, that Israel itself right. seems to prefer Trump, but, but Jews in the United States tend to prefer Biden. So if you can comment a bit on that, that might be helpful. Well, yes. Of course, uh, Israelis living in Israel prefer Trump because he's done so many activities that have bolstered their national self-respect and reputation moving the embassy above all uh, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, and continuing uh, to support Israel in all of its major diplomatic and military activities, as well as promoting peace between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, and Sudan, and probably in the future, uh, Saudi Arabia. So Israelis really like Trump. They universally say that he's the best American president they've ever had, whereas American Jews tend to be more liberal in social terms and don't have a very favorable attitude towards Christian conservatives. Mm-hmm. Well, David, we got to leave it right there. But great stuff as always, uh, getting a little sense of what's happening around the globe from a Christian standpoint. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll take, take a quick pause here and when we come back, we'll wrap up the show here on Mornings Without Carmen.
Well, great to be with you, Paul Perot, here again this morning. All the listeners as part of Mornings with Carmen. Uh, just an enjoyable stable of guests, again, that give us such wisdom from a variety of perspectives. Well, that's what we try to bring. Uh, that's what Carmen and I work on every day. So even though you're calling it Mornings Without Carmen. <laughs> that was from Carmen's invitation. She was yeah, texting me saying okay. i got to change the name of the show for the day. Uh, I love it. Well, it would be a great way to wrap up the show. I find the words of Martin Luther King Jr. to always be so helpful and filled with wisdom in situations such as this. So he wrote... Uh, these words and kind of sit with them for the rest of today and maybe throughout the week as we deal with what's going on in the election. He says, are we seeking power for power's sake or are we seeking to make the world and our nation better places to live? If we seek the latter, violence can never provide the answer. For the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral and it begets the very thing that it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, violence multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor can you establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases the hate. And so it goes, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night that is already devoid of the stars. For darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And that is the perspective that we carry as the kingdom dwellers, as Raleigh Washington would say, bringing light and hope and peace and love in this world. Sit with that, bring that into the world over the next uh, 24 hours in the week ahead. We'll catch you soon here on Mornings Without Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.